Good evening and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On the programme this evening, as Sunday's the Feast of Diwali, the Hindu Festival of Lights, we'll hear how some people here in Ireland are marking the event. We'll also talk with Dr. Fancha Ryan as she shares her insight into the monastic minds of the 14th century as we chat about Umberto Eco's novel and the TV series The Name of the Rose. But first, as the Synod of the Amazon comes to a close in Rome, what will be the outcomes of this four-week event and what have been some of the outstanding moments? To find out more, we're joined now from the Eternal City by Colm Flynn. Colm, good evening. Good evening, Michael from Rome. I'm sitting here in a studio right beside the Vatican. As I look out the window, I can see St. Peter's Basilica just a few doors down. And you're right, I've been here for the entire month covering this synod, which is a meeting of bishops from all over the world who are talking about the Amazon region or the nine countries that the Amazon stretches across and ways of better serving the faithful there. And because one of the big issues there is the shortage of priests. It's a very serious issue for them. Some of the indigenous people that have come here have said that they only see a priest maybe once a year. These are people who live in very remote communities, sometimes in the Amazon rainforest deep within it. And as part of the meeting of bishops, mainly from South Latin America, they have invited indigenous leaders along to Rome and to the Vatican for the month. But with them, some of these indigenous leaders brought uh, statues Now, from the beginning, there was a lot of debate around these statues that were photographed in and around the Vatican. And at the start of the Synod, to mark the opening of the conference, Francis, who was the first ever Pope from Latin America, he invited some of these indigenous leaders into the Vatican Gardens, where they had a service, a ceremony, and central to the service were some of these indigenous statues. So when these photographs spread from the Vatican around the world, there was a lot of confusion within the Catholic community, some anger from some quarters, people asking, what are these statues? What do they represent? Are they pagan statues? Do they represent the Virgin Mary? The statues were wooden statues of a naked pregnant woman. So started saying these were pagan gods of fertility. Others were saying, no, they represented the Virgin Mary. So at a press conference at the Vatican, Some journalists asked the Vatican for clarification. They said, this is what people are saying. You can understand the concern. All we want is for the Vatican to clarify what these statues represent, what they symbolize. And the Vatican said, well, they're neither pagan nor sacred. They just, they represent life. And that answer settled it for a while. But then the story came to a head last Monday when just before dawn, two people, snuck into a church which is not in the Vatican but a few doors down from the Vatican and they stole six of the statues and they walked down to the Tiber River which is just a few minutes down the road and one by one they threw them into the river. They videotaped the entire thing and they put it up on YouTube. So whatever efforts were being made by the Vatican to make an indigenous group of people feel welcome this certainly wasn't one of them. No, and the Vatican came out afterwards and made a statement and said, look, this was a criminal act. It was stealing from a church and that it wasn't in the spirit of open dialogue. And we broadcast the pictures first on EWTN News around the world and we showed the video. We narrated it and said what was happening. And there was a mixed reaction. A lot of people saw it for what they thought it was, which is stealing from a church, vandalism and so on and so forth. But then a lot of other Catholics were saying, no, they started uh, quoting scripture saying we can't 
worship false gods and they were hailing these two men who have yet to be identified as heroes for doing what they did. Have the police in Rome followed up on this? Yeah, the church in question, again, like I said, it's not part of the Vatican, but very close to the Vatican. And this church has been a central meeting point for the indigenous community over the four weeks. So every morning they have um, rituals in there, they celebrate mass, and every morning they have their statues in there central to their ceremony. So the church has contacted the police who said they're investigating. Now, what will come from that investigation, we'll have to wait and see. But a few days ago, a video was uploaded to YouTube of a man who claimed responsibility for taking the statues and dumping them in the river. How much credibility he has is in question. People who've watched it are just uh, wondering that. But it remains to be seen what has happened. But the, the sad thing is for many people here that it has kind of derailed the Synod to a certain extent. From the very beginning, all the talk was about these statues. And just when it was beginning to die down and people thought that they'd put it to rest, you know, we were starting to move on to the real issues that the Synod was originally called for, the ecological plight of the people there, how we're going to better serve their needs as Catholics, whether that be ordaining married men or women deacons. And then all of a sudden, all the focus once again was back on these six indigenous statues. Well, if the purpose was to create a distraction, they certainly done that. I think as all looking at it as well from an Irish perspective, I mean, if you look at our own Christian and history of the use of pagan symbols, Celtic crosses, for example, working their way into Christian faith, that, uh, that that's why I suppose a lot of people looking at this story are a little bit bemused by it. And that's one thing Pope Francis addressed in his weekly audience last Wednesday. He came out and made a couple of statements which everybody took as him responding to the issue of the statues being thrown in the river. And he said, look, all over the world, people have parts of their cultures and symbols from their cultures and their backgrounds and their history in their own faith. I know that a few years ago I traveled to Australia. I spent a month in different parts of Australia where we were filming with the Aboriginal community there who were Catholics and they had parts of their tradition incorporated into their uh, Catholic Mass. But it's all about how they incorporate it and what is central to the Mass. Catholics here, their issue and their argument as far as I can see was not so much the statues but was that the statues were central to, let's say, the service in Vatican Gardens. They were in the middle of a circle that people were dancing around and Pope Francis was sitting there as part of that. So that's what I think they had a real issue with. Well, Colin, the distraction aside, let's look at a summary then of the Synod. You've been, as you said, there for a number of weeks. What's going to happen next? Well, this is the big question. What will be in this concluding document? So for the last four weeks, bishops from all over the world and cardinals, mainly from Latin America, have been having meetings every day. They've been having this conference where they've been talking about different ways that they can help in the nine countries that the Amazon covers. So they've put all that down on paper, all the suggestions. Tomorrow, Saturday, they will vote on it. So they will call out all the suggestions. The bishops will vote on which ones they think are the most likely to succeed or they think would fit best with the church and the Catholic teachings. That document will be presented then late Saturday night to the media or on Sunday and it will go forward and be presented to Pope Francis. Now, it is simply asking Pope Francis to consider studying these points. Ultimately, he is the man in charge. He's the commander in chief. It is down to Pope Francis whether he wants to enact any of the suggestions or not. Colin Flynn in Rome this evening. Thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much, Michael. Diwali, known as the Festival of Lights, is one of the most important events in the Hindu calendar, with a five-day period of festivities taking place in India and across the globe. 
It's an exuberant celebration of new beginnings and the triumph of light over darkness. Homes are scrupulously cleaned from top to bottom. Windowsills glow with clay lamps and shooting stars of pink and gold fireworks fill the skies. This year marks the 10th anniversary of Diwali celebrations in Ireland and last Wednesday evening Dublin's City Hall came alive as more than 100 people gathered together. Noel Sweeney went along for the leap of faith and was met by Aparna and Prashant Shukla of the Ireland India Council and also spoke with other members of the Irish Indian community about the significance of Diwali. that's here it smells absolutely delicious yeah that's actually pulao so it is rice with the cumin seeds and as you can see that they have some green herbs on top of it so it is absolutely gorgeous and I'm here in city hall in dame street at an event that celebrates the triumph of light over dark and good over evil the event marks the beginning of a five-day hindu celebration Every year Diwali may fall on different dates, even different months. So like next year in 2020, Diwali will be happening in November. And that is based on our Indian calendar, which is based on the lunar cycle. So each month is divided into two parts, and the dark fortnight and the bright fortnight. So usually Diwali will fall on Amavasya, which is the last day of the lunar cycle, and it's the darkest night in the in a year, in a way, because this lunar cycle, it will be like no moon on this Amavasya night, and when there is no light in the sky, then we put out the light to the universe. So it's very meaningful. It's a celebration of triumph of light over dark. Absolutely, you just said it. So it's a triumph of light over darkness, knowledge over ignorance and good over evil. And Prashant, you have a particular role here within the Irish Indian community. Uh, my job is I'm a founder and chief executive of Ireland India Council and uh, my intention and job is to promote uh, friendship between two countries and to develop relations, economic, cultural and various other fields like education and all. And how important is that to you? It is very important because since I arrived here, I found that there's no platform where people can interact and know about each other country and uh, in their institutions since they have uh, huge uh, connect during uh, freedom struggles of, uh, of two countries. And after that, it is uh, all the, those links was faded. So uh, I met one of the professor in uh, University College Dublin, who was very much interested in developing relations with India on economic uh, side. So he asked my help, and then we set up Ireland India Council in 2002. It's going well? It is going very well. Traditionally, Diwali is celebrated over five days. So first day is called Dhanteras, which is um, basically um, kind of you're just uh, enjoying and celebrating prosperity. So everybody goes out for shopping and they will buy either silver or gold coin 
or they may go and buy utensils if they can't afford expensive jewelry and then second day is choti diwali and that's like a small diwali when everybody would um, clean up their bodies properly and uh, that means using a lot of traditional herbs and things like that to massage the body and get ready for the big diwali so the big diwali is happening on this coming sunday which is 27th of uh, october and um, that diwali day is um, we worship lord ganesha god of wisdom and we worship uh, goddess lakshmi she is a goddess of wealth so wisdom and wealth they complement each other so if you have wealth and you have the wisdom to use it properly then you are on the right path uh, and then uh, the of uh, on this day there is lot of fireworks and uh, sweets and friends and families meet come together and enjoy the big diwali festival and everybody will put on new clothes then the fourth day is called um, pareva so on pareva in lot of parts in india the new year will start according to our indian calendar and then fifth day is the last day which is celebration of the Uh, relationship of a brother and sister also speaking at the event is dublin city deputy lord mayor paddy mccarton what does it mean to you to be able to represent the irish voice here well it's very important to me in in city hall in particular because this is where we conduct our business and where dublin city council has sat for the last couple of hundred years in effect so this is a unique event and it's very important for both myself and of course for the indian community offering insights from well beyond his years this young man patrice explains what the valley means to him as an indian irish citizen how important is it that you have the option of celebrating this festival here in dublin in ireland um the valley is a very traditional festival so it's thousands of years old and it, it's really important to indian people around the world so it's important to celebrate it wherever we are and do you feel any benefits to your sense of self perhaps um it makes me appreciate how far the world has come and how we've evolved from thousands of years ago and how the festival itself has changed so it makes me feel important in a sense जैसे तुझको बनाया गया है मेरे लिए of colors and sounds here in city hall tonight are musicians and dancers from the Irish Indian community Indian dance happening here tonight Yeah we are very excited uh, this dance is from south indian traditional dance called bharatanatyam so we have very much happy excited to do a performance here for the india ireland council so we i'm very proud that you know, our culture dance is going to be performed before everyone here i'm from south india the south india we are going to uh, celebrate diwali on sunday we do like a lot of uh, sweets at home and keeping all the lambs and invite the friends celebrations continuing on into the night i would like to say to all the listeners that do celebrate diwali 
So all you have to do is just uh, light some tea light candles in all corners of your home and uh, beforehand clean up the home and invite goddess of wealth Lakshmi in your house. So wishing you all a very very happy and prosperous Diwali. Thank you. Noel Sweeney bringing us that report from Dublin City Hall where there were celebrations for Diwali. The live music you heard was performed by Deepash and Mallory. And we also heard from Nirnyana, who performed classical Indian dance during the evening. Next this evening, currently running on BBC Two Television, in fact, just before we come on air at 10, is an Italian-German co-production of Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. The book has sold over 50 million copies. So what's the fascination with a murder mystery based on the work of the scribes and the libraries of ancient monasteries? I already had a great desire to visit the library. I cannot allow you to enter. No one may, no one can. Even if you manage to enter, this library can protect itself. The beauty, the color, perfume of a rose, when it wilts, only a word remains. To explore this more with me in the studio is Dr. Fancha Ryan, Director of the Loyal Institute in Trinity College, Dublin. Fancha, welcome. So what's this fascination for us? Probably the main area of interest for most people is the fact that, again, it's a murder mystery set in a particular historical context, but it's the murder mystery type of things and you've got lots of monks going around and then I suppose the fact that you've got a murder taking place in a monastery and we normally in our idealised minds think of a monastery as a place of holy people, very holy people living very holy lives. But here I think we're introduced in a sense to the life of a monastery of this era and the life of a monastery of this era is the life of a monastery of any era which is the life of a bunch of people together Mm. and all sorts of things can happen. But we're talking about uh, 1327 so set us a picture of what would have been happening in the world uh, certainly around the monastery at the time. Yeah okay so we're in the north of Italy I think and it's a very interesting type of world you're going to have a world of great poverty in which Uh, living life is very difficult for everyone including those in the monastery but even more so for those who are living around the monastery and who interact with the monks Um, from the church's point of view we've a mixture well church and politics are mixed up together we've a a man whose pope is John the 22nd and he's down in Avignon he's one of the Avignon popes and then you have the Holy Roman Emperor, who they call the Holy Roman Emperor in waiting, I think, at this stage, is Ludwig of Bavaria. And John and Ludwig don't get on together. You have two new congregations, relatively new. You've got the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and they feature very strongly, along with the Benedictines, who are much longer established. The Franciscans, the story of what's going on with the Franciscans, gets a lot of emphasis in the book and in the programme, because the Franciscans, as most of us know, adapt or sought to adapt a radical poverty. They said they don't want to own anything and so the theory was then that the Pope would own everything for them. But at this stage there's a group of Franciscans, as very often happens, who are, if you like, a breakaway group who are speaking or preaching a very radical poverty. And then the question they're asking and that they want to be debated is did Jesus and his followers own anything individually or collectively? Now of course the people get very radical, some very other people start to follow them and you get these heretical groups developing. And there's um, a lot of debate going on. This is very much part of the story that that we're witnessing. It's also the time of the Inquisition. And the Inquisition, again, is something that 
popularly today gets very bad space. And we've got a character mentioned in the story called Bernard Gui, who's a Dominican. And he's portrayed in a very a particular way as being a, a dreadful type of person. But historians today are actually telling us that maybe Bernard of Gui wasn't all that bad. Bad enough, but not all that bad. Because a lot of the work of the Inquisition, which is very strange to our minds today, was to try and bring people back into good standing with the church, back into what would be seen as right living. And apparently Bernard managed to get lots of people back into the church. And the actor Rupert Everett, of course, uh, in the current series, which is running on TV, is quite a scary manifestation of that Inquisition. Their techniques were hardly um, charitable. Yeah. Now, I don't I haven't studied the Inquisition, but I've read a little bit. And it seems that a lot of their techniques that were seen on film and reading more popular literature are things that were done rarely and occasionally. Because, in fact, as far as I understand, the church never burnt anyone at the stake. But the people who were burnt at the stake, the really severe heretics, were handed over to state authorities. And it was the state who then burned people at the stake. So you can see the interaction between the church and state at this stage. But apparently not that many were actually burnt at the stake. Now, it's dreadful that even one was burnt at the stake. But um, you can't compare the violence of then with the violence of today because today on our media all the time we're hearing more and more stories of dreadful forms of violence. Mm. In this time and in the the programmes that we're seeing on television at the moment, we see violence face to face. We see people killing one another. We see people being very rough to another. Today we're more removed from that type of violence, like someone in maybe the States presses a button and a drone drops a bomb in Syria or the Syrians are far away from us. But... I think we need to be careful not to judge that time as being much more violent than our times of mm. today. And we, of course, are talking about a TV programme, the, the Name of the Rose. Yeah. It was also a film in 1986 with Sean Connery in it as well. Yeah. And, and I'd like to use it as a springboard at this point, mm-hmm. really, to the point for you as an historian. When you see a story like this being represented in the film world for, well, let's be honest, for, for entertainment purposes, uh, does, it, does it create a little bit of an irritation for you or, or, or does it actually encourage you that people are interested in the area? A little bit of both, like the Hilary Mantle books, and then that, that was also televised. They're very interesting. They tell us a lot. It might get people to read more into the area, mm. as long as people don't go off with the very popular notion of what was going on and just damn that era of history as not to be looked at at all. Um, I've seen the 1986 film version. And it was very interesting. I enjoyed it very much. What's very interesting, I think, in it is the whole story of the... I mentioned the poverty, but the other problem was the question of is it all right to laugh as a Christian? Yes, and that's, a, that's on going through the whole story. And apparently we are looking in this era for Aristotle's um, book, uh, I think the Commedia, which he apparently he mentioned he would write, but no one has ever seen it, was it ever written. And it was to be about comedy, laughing. And there is the question that's asked, did Jesus ever laugh? Like, can a Christian laugh? Now, someone like Thomas Aquinas, who was reading Aristotle, Uh, made the very interesting point that to be able to laugh and to smile is one of the distinctive forms of being a human. So again, I think you can see theological truth emanating through the story, although it's overlaid with lots of other um, sort of magical type of things Mm. like the library would protect itself by magic. Mm. Well, you know, again, we're referring to both book and film here and uh, Umberto Eco's novel. Uh, You know, we see monks together. uh, There are a lot of monks if you're trying to keep up with the characters and they're 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 writing manuscript. And all I can think of is the Book of Kells. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if at the same time there was any level of intrigue going on around these particular scriptures closer to home. 
Um, this I wouldn't really know. I mean, we're, we're a couple of hundred years earlier with the Book of Kells and the time in Ireland at, the, at this time is going to be pretty bad. We're being invaded all the time by the Vikings and by the Normans, I think. Um, so times in Ireland are bad. But if we go back to the scriptorium, I suppose we would have had something like that. Now, different because we're in a different world. We're hundreds of years beforehand. We're also in a Benedictine monastery and the Benedictines very quickly got their monasteries well established. They got quite wealthy mm. very early on. So things are clear. They have their scriptorium going. What I find very strange in the book, but I suppose it's an underlying message that they're trying to bring through, but I wouldn't see it as historical, is that they have a very fine library of manuscripts, but no one's allowed in it. And then it's kept in, kept in a labyrinth. So if you go in, you'll get lost anyway. So it's only accessible to some people. But underpinning all of that, I suppose, is the fact that they're trying to say, well, the truth is only for some people. And I don't think that would have been truth to the times that were in it. All right. We can, because it's film, have a little fantasy moment, which is that if you were to have an hour in that labyrinth, what would you head for? What would you look for? I'd be looking to see if they've got the works of Aquinas because that's the guy I've studied and I'd be looking for <coughs> Aristotle. And I'd also probably look to see if there's any... Have the Irish got there? Because the Irish were... The Irish had got to the north of Italy and we have monasteries up there. So I'd wonder, was there any infiltration with the Irish type of monastic life with these Benedictines who are very different? But perhaps they were willing to learn from us. So that's what I'd be looking for and hoping I didn't get lost. What did the Irish bring? The Irish um, brought the faith, if you like, the Christian faith, back into mainland Europe after mainland Europe had gone through awful crisis. Some of us at school will have learned of the island of saints and scholars between 600 and 900 so we would have the missioners going back over. St. Columbanus, for example, is probably the most famous man who ended up in Bobbio in the north of Italy. And he would have brought a particular way of monastic life. And we also reckon that they brought manuscripts with them. We don't have that many extant manuscripts in Ireland that were produced by what we might call the Celtic hand. But on mainland Europe, we are discovering there are many, many more that were either produced by Irish monks are produced by people who had been taught within the Irish monks tradition. So St. Columbanus is the key figure. So perhaps Bobbio is not too far away from this monastery and perhaps people were travelling over and back. We don't know. Well, the series continues on BBC Two Television on Friday evening at nine o'clock, one hour before we're on the air here on The Leap of Faith. Dr. Fonja Ryan, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thanks very much. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. From us here tonight, producer Sheila Callan, broadcast coordinator Jarlath Holland, and from me, Michael Cummins. Good night.